Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. <laughs> they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, my name is Miles. I'm one of the assistant ministers here. And uh, a great joy to be with you here as God's people as we look at uh, Luke 19. Let me pray and then we'll jump in. Our Father, uh, we give you thanks that you are not a hidden God, but you have made yourself known. That we may know you, uh, know what it means to be loved by you, know what it means to be cared for by you, and know that we are yours. In Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, we've been walking through uh, Luke 9 through to 19 uh, with the theme of the road to save us. Jesus in Luke, 19, uh, Luke 9 turns resolutely to head towards Jerusalem and in this passage he arrives. This is the end of the road. He reaches the end point of this journey uh, as he set out. And one of, one of the key themes that's popped up as we go through Luke 9 to 19 is just this question of uh, the identity of Jesus. Who is this guy? Uh, what is he about? What is he for? Who is Jesus? And you realize, although it's a very simple question, it's an incredibly powerful question because uh, it actually shapes everything. It shapes well, how people would follow him. It shapes how people, what people would proclaim about him. It's an incredibly powerful question that needs an incredibly important answer. Now, there was a time in uh, the mid-2000s where a Christian sociologist called Christian Smith was looking around at the culture around him in Christian culture, and he was looking around and he was wondering, he was wondering why he didn't see uh, the transformation of lives in real life that he saw in Scripture. He wasn't seeing people 
transformed uh, to be a part of the kingdom of Jesus. What he was looked around and what he saw was kind of communities of like assimilation to the culture around them that were kind of living out like good and nice lives uh, amongst the people. And he wasn't seeing the radical kind of living for the kingdom with Jesus' king moments. So he and other sociologists, they went about the research to explore this. And they realised, they came to this conclusion that, that what they were seeing was the natural outcome of who people understood Jesus to be. So there's a direct correlation between the behaviour and who they understood Jesus to be. That Christianity for them, following and worshipping Jesus, had been replaced by kind of a different idea. And they, they gave it a term, it's a very, you know, uh, sociologist term that we would never use in real life. They called it moralistic therapeutic deism. Broken down much more simply, moralistic, that Jesus focused on doing the right thing, so do good things. Therapeutic, Jesus focused on what makes you feel happy, so feel good, be happy. And deism, Jesus is real, but, but he's absent and distant. And he's given you responsibility for your life to be good and be happy. You've got this. And that idea of who Jesus is to, for us, uh, towards us, to do good, feel good, you've got this, will produce a particular life. And so far removed from the gospel, and it wasn't seeing the fruit of or the nature of being transformed by a relationship with Jesus. Who we perceive, we believe, we view, imagine Jesus to be as he relates to us has an incredibly significant impact upon who we are in our lives as we follow Jesus and in the lives we're inviting people who aren't Christians to follow Jesus. As we get to Luke 19, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, we get to see who Jesus is. We get to see some of the answers to this question. Here's the two things we're going to see. First, majesty and second, mourning. First of all, majesty. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, the center, the capital of his people, uh, there's a number of things in the story that kind of signal to his identity uh, as majesty, as the royalty of Jesus. As he's coming down the mountain to enter Jerusalem, he sends his disciples ahead to him, ahead of him to get a colt, a colt being a young horse, mule, donkey, or pony. This is a weird moment because uh, he, he's been walking for weeks. He's been journeying for months. Why at the very last minute does he think, well, I've got about 100 metres to go. Maybe I should get a ride at the end. There's a very inten- intentional reason about what's going on here. He gets this because it's fulfilling a prophecy made about him long ago. From Zechariah 9... It says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He'll proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from, river, from the river to the ends of the earth. That as he does this act, it's proclaiming to those around him as he enters the city, he's the king. The people, knowing this prophecy and seeing him coming, uh, they hear, and having heard of Jesus before, the next thing that happens is they start laying their cloaks down on the ground as he walks past uh, as a sign of honour and respect to the incoming king. This is an ancient ritual well known to the people of welcoming a king to the city. 
Added on top of that, the crowd goes before Jesus proclaiming, other disciples go before him proclaiming his miracles, his deeds, joyfully shouting, this is the one. This is the one who we've been waiting for. This is the one promised the people of God long ago. This is the one who will bring peace and prosperity to God's people. That his mere presence is, is a celebratory moment that hope has arrived. This is Sam Kerr walking onto the field in the middle of the World Cup. This is Nathan Cleary touching the ball at any point in last week's grand final. This is that moment in the movie when everything's falling apart and then the hero turns up and all that was lost and and feared for is resolved by the arrival of the hero to the great relief of everyone involved. The turning of the story. That his presence is a sign of hope to them. And they celebrate this. They celebrate, they give praise with words from Psalm 118. Now this psalm uh, was a traditional psalm sung by the people as they would go on a pilgrimage to enter Jerusalem. It's a psalm, uh, it's a song of victory that they would sing. And here's some of the words from that psalm. The shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. It's a song of victory and celebration. So to them, this, this Jesus coming, this king, is an is a overturning of the rule that is already existent in their lives. This is a, a renewal of all things. The king has arrived. Further on in that psalm, they quote that psalm a bit further on in this chapter with a subtle change, which is very intentional. Now, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord from the house of the Lord, who we bless him, Psalm 118. And in Luke 19, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus, on his arrival in Jerusalem, at the end of the road to save us, he is the king. That is his identity, that encapsulates his purpose, that is who he is. And we, we, don't have particular, we don't have particularly much of an experience of having a king. Even our experience is, is not true of what they're describing as king. I mean, most of us have had a queen for most of our lives, uh, but even her, her rule has come very different to what's being described here. And in my experience of the monarchy is mostly that I got a cheeky public holiday once a year, and every now and again there's an exciting royal wedding slash controversy slash wild Oprah interview. That's mostly my experience of the monarchy, right? But this is something much bigger. See, kings, kings rule. The kingdom is where the king has dominion. There are not votes unless the king decides there are. There are not changes to laws unless the king gives permission for them. Kings are not elected. They're not subject to us. They're not subject to our popularity, a popular desire for them. We are subject to them. In Jesus' kingdom, this is who Jesus is. He is the king. To be a follower of him to put faith in him, to entrust our lives to him, is to become a part of his dominion, his rule. For a follower of Jesus, for a Christian to to answer, how shall I live today? Well, the answer in part is to say, how does the king want me to live today? I am his citizen. I am his. This is who he is. Jesus is the king. 
That's the first part we see, the majesty of Jesus. And the second, uh, we see the mourning. And in the morning, we see the nature of what this king is like. Because even as I describe the king's rule and, and, and kind of that, our natural response in our culture is, uh, is fear, I think. Whenever we hear of, of someone having that much power, there's an, a right nervousness that comes to us. To give someone too much power, well, they, they will obviously abuse it and misuse it. To have the vulnerability of someone having so much power to rule over you is scary. And one of the questions you might ask as you think about Jesus as king is, is Jesus a safe person to be king? Is Jesus an okay person to have that vulnerable kind of uh, rulership over you? Which is to ask, what is the king like? And what we see is, well, Jesus is a king who, who mourns. In the midst of this celebration going on, in the midst of all that's happening, this massive party festival that's going on, the person the party's about is not celebrating. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, Jesus wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children with your wall, within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus in this moment is, is proclaiming judgment upon God's people, upon, upon the center. He does so weeping. He doesn't long for this judgment. He's devastated by it. Jesus weeps twice in scripture. I take it he probably weeps more times, but it's recorded twice. And when you see his tears, it's not a sign of, of weakness or lack of emotional maturity. It's a sign of what he deeply cares about. It's a sign of what he longs for and loves. That as he pronounces rightly deserved judgment, he doesn't rejoice. He's not celebrating as he comes to the city. He mourns. His heart is broken. Who is this king? Well, Jesus is a king who cares. Who wants better for his people. This is not a show or a political stunt. This is Jesus revealing himself to us. He cares. What does he care for his people? Well, he, he longs that they would have peace. Is this longing, if you, even you, had only known this day, what would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. That he wants for them to, to have peace. He wants that to be their reality. He cares about his people. He sees the turmoil of their experience of, of creation, of the fall. He knows this was not how it's meant to be. He longs for it to be different, to bring peace. And that's why he'll go to the cross and come back from the dead to bring that peace. We see that he desires change for his people. It's not just do what you want. It's he wants something more for them. The last thing we see is uh, he is there with them. Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is a fascinating one line at kind of the end of the paragraph, and you kind of read over it quickly and, and miss it. He's arriving in Jerusalem. 
And he says, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. The, the Greek would describe it as God's visitation. This is a big deal. This is kind of as close as Jesus gets to saying he's God. God has come. That in their judgment, in, in, in the, the turmoil, the place that they find themselves, God is coming in. He's not just absent and distant. And when we see Jesus mourn and weep, we're seeing what God cares about. We're seeing God mourn and weep. When we see Jesus weep and mourn the state of his people far from him, we are seeing God's heart for his people. When we see Jesus bringing peace, we are seeing God's heart to bring peace for his people. And in Jesus, we get to see what God is really like. And rather than Christianity being about do good, feel good, and you've got this, we see a replacement moment where it's, it's about, well, actually, Jesus cares. He deeply cares about us, that he would mourn for us. He cares about the plight of his people. And he comes to bring a change, to bring peace. And rather than you've got this, it's, it's replaced by he's got this. So God coming to the world is doing something about this, that Jesus has entered into Jerusalem to bring about change. It's not a laying on a burden of you take responsibility and solve all the problems. It's to say Jesus has come in to, to act in your life. Jesus cares. Jesus has come to bring change and peace. And Jesus is God coming to us. As we see the majesty and, and, and mourning of Jesus, we're seeing who he truly is. See, this, this moment in, uh, in Luke, uh, in the story of Jesus, is the high point of Jesus' public ministry. This is kind of as, as famous and popular as he gets. This is, this is him reaching the, the Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey level, levels of popularity. For all three of you in the room that got that joke, it's a big deal, good on you, well done. At 6 p.m., that joke will kill. But trust me, it's a big deal. But it's just the peak level of, of, of celebratory nature. It is this moment of, of adoration. Never again does Jesus experience this. Except for one day in heaven. But, it, but never again is this, on earth, this is, this is the, the moment where he is adored as the king who comes in. He's deeply honoured. The king bringing peace. It's the high point. And yet it, it highlights the low point to come. See, we, we read this in the context of the story that's going to follow, and we know that. We know that this is a high point, but we also know that in a short term, those crowds that are there honouring him, putting their cloaks on the ground and celebrating him, we know that those same crowds will be shouting for his death. That celebration turns to condemnation within a very short period of time. We know that the disciples who are, who are singing his praises before him with, with a, a joyous abandon, we know that in a very short time they will abandon him altogether. They will hide in fear, afraid of the cost of being associated with him. Incredible high to incredible low. And the change between this moment is powerful. That Jesus, the majestic king, he, his presence and his words and his actions 
Well, as he exists in Jerusalem over the next, few, next little bit of period of time, his presence and his words and his actions, they bring contempt and loathing towards him. That he's celebrated as he enters, but as he exists there, it becomes really clear that he wasn't the king the people wanted. The conflict starts in this passage in verse 39 where the Pharisees are uh, pushing back against Jesus, saying, tell the, tell, the, um, tell the disciples to stop praising you in the streets. He doesn't stop them. It continues on. It turns, uh, continues on in the next chapter when he goes into the temple and he turns over the tables and says, you're turning uh, this place into a den of robbers. You're ruining the temple of where God is meant to be worshipped. He goes on to then rebuke, uh, rebuke, uh, rebuke the people for uh, rejecting him as the cornerstone of faith. It goes on again where he says the temple's going to be destroyed. The place of worship is going to be destroyed. And then he warns the people against listening uh, to religious teachers of the time. It's like every room that Jesus walks into in the next week or so, he points out the things that he knows are going to bring controversy. He points out the elephants in the room. He is celebrated here, and within a short time he is ridiculed. He is celebrated as king, and within a short time he is crowned with a crown of thorns. It's a weird change. What happens? How, do, how does that happen? Well, what we see is the people wanted him to be a particular type of king. But Jesus is the king that he had to be. He's not the king that the people wanted. He's not the king that the disciples wanted. He's not the king that the, certainly not the king that the Pharisees and teachers of the law wanted. He's the king that he had to be, and he's the king that we needed him to be. The king that came in to say, this is not okay, is bringing about change and peace to this world. And the change for the people raises this question of, what was their relationship with this king? How did they go from celebrating to condemning? From celebrating to hiding? And that question of what is their relationship with that king, well, it kind of pushes out of the story onto us. What's, what's your relationship with the king? Jesus is king. Are we ready to sing a psalm of praise on a Sunday as long as Jesus fulfills some of our hopes and desires? Can we follow in celebration of the majestic king? But we don't want to follow, in, in, follow the king into trouble, controversy, trial and personal cost. What's your relationship with the king? The first response of the disciples and the crowd is the one we are invited into and to continue in. We're invited to worship. For our king is not just a mere human king, but he is God. The king who cares, the king who has come to bring peace to a chaotic world, the king who is God with us, and we are invited to worship and praise and celebrate and rejoice in him.
We sing songs in church not because they are catchy and we need to give the creative people something to do on a Sunday morning. We sing out of the overflow of the relationship we have with our King. We sing because we have something so worth singing about. We celebrate because we have something worth celebrating. The King who cares, who brings peace, who is God come to us, has arrived and he invites us to worship him. In the good seasons and the bad seasons. The moments where it's easy and the moments where it might bring trouble. We are invited to worship him as the king. The king who cares, the king who brings peace. God come to us.